Welcome. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Pratt Library, and we're so pleased to have you here. Uh, we're so pleased to welcome you tonight to another uh, series uh, as part of our Writers Live series at the Pratt, and we are so pleased that all of you could come tonight. Tonight is, is very special because we have um, a person who is really closely associated with a very special friend of the Pratt Library. Some people call themselves friends, but this person is really a friend. Um, she was one of the founders and one of the first co-chairs of an exciting new group that we have of supporters of the Pratt Library. They're a group of, and I asked if I could say this word, young <laughs> cosmopolitans who are interested, though, in the mission of the Pratt Library to serve as many people as possible and, and, and promote lifelong learning. And she's now a member of the Pratt's board of directors. So we're just very pleased, and I have to take this opportunity to thank her personally for starting the Pratt Contemporaries, for even letting the old folks like us into it. We've been invited to it, but, but really for supporting the Pratt and what it does. So please welcome Ms. Chris Espenshade. lovely. Thank you very much and thank you all for coming. This is um, very exciting to be here and I'm very excited to introduce my father-in-law, Tom Espenshade. As I sent uh, information out about this, I got some emails back from people who said, um, are you related to this guy? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, the likelihood that you've got an Espenshade promoting an Espenshade is pretty rare, unless you're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, where every other person is an Espen shade. And people have asked me before, you know, oh, you must be from Lancaster. I was like, oh, no, I married someone from there. And they wondered if I was part of the Espen shade egg empire. And no, I'm not. So I did not give out any free eggs. But again, thank you all for coming. Um, and thanks to Vernon Reed, who's been a tremendous supporter um, as we've put this whole thing together and all the other Pratt Library members. Um, uh, Tom is a very accomplished uh, professor at Princeton University, my alma mater, and I think some of you are probably Princeton alums here in the crowd. Um, my husband, his son, is also a Princeton alum. Tom was the uh, chair of the sociology department at Princeton and took some time off to write this fascinating book. Um, but prior to that, he um, taught at a few places, uh, Bowdoin, Berkeley, FSU, then he was at the Urban Institute, then Brown University, and now he's at Princeton. Um, he graduated from the College of Worcester, then went to Yale, and received his PhD from Princeton as well, so he's um, uh, quite accomplished. But the book that he's going to talk about tonight um, is very timely in all that's going on in the world, and I think is particularly important for Baltimore and the citizens of this city. Um, his book addresses the role of elite higher education in confronting the issues of inequality on college campuses, which I think is going to continue um, to get a tremendous amount of press, especially with a lot of the issues going on on the West Coast and um, some of the schools there and the discrimination that people are facing. So he can give you all the scoop. Um, on the research and the methodology associated with that. But thanks for coming, and here's Tom Espenshade. Thank you, Chris. I, I didn't realize what a treat it was to be introduced by your daughter-in-law. It's very nice. Thank you. And thanks also to the people who are connected with the Pratt Library for uh, organizing this function tonight, the uh, it's nice that so many people came out, and, and thanks to those who, who have come out. I wanted to um, 
talk for uh, a while about our new book, touching on some of the highlights, and I wanted to leave time for questions and answers at the end. What I thought I would do is explain a little bit about how I got involved in this project in the first place, and then uh, touch on two of the many questions that the, the book addresses, and then finally uh, talk about some of the policy recommendations. Uh, I think that'll be uh, an interesting part of the conversation because I have a sense just having chatted with some people earlier that people are primed to talk about at least one of the important uh, policy recommendations. So um, about a dozen years ago, two professors at Harvard made a rather startling discovery. Skip Gates, who was, uh, is, is the professor of English at Harvard and chair of the African American Studies program, and Lonnie Guineer, who's in the law school at Harvard, uh, were doing a study of the backgrounds of Harvard undergraduates, the black students at Harvard. And what they discovered was that fewer than half of the black students at Harvard were descendants of the American slave population, and the majority of black students were either immigrants themselves or had an immigrant parent or who were multiracial. Um, in fact, what they found on the Harvard campus was that about a third of the black students were so-called descendants, and two-thirds of the black students were what we've ended up calling vanguards. And this uh, proved to create a, a fair amount of controversy on the Harvard campus, and also raised questions about what the admissions office was doing to skew the population in, in such a way. So uh, about this time, I was uh, doing research on contemporary immigration to the United States, sitting at my desk, minding my own business, and the phone rang, and it was a program officer at the Mellon Foundation at the other end who said, uh, can you come up to New York? I have a proposal to make. When the Mellon Foundation calls, you say, yes, I can come. So um, the proposition was put to me that we should really investigate the nativity backgrounds of black students um, at a variety of selective colleges and universities across the country to determine whether this finding, this allegation at Harvard, was uh, symptomatic of a broader trend or whether it was just something that was idiosyncratic. So I said, sure, I have a little background in immigration. I'll help on this project. So we thought initially, well, actually, I didn't think initially, but the program officer thought this will be just a 12-month study. We'll contact the uh, admission departments at the colleges and universities that we're interested in we'll ask them where their black students have come from, and we'll be able to tell whether the thing at Harvard is unique or whether it's symptomatic of a broader pattern. Well, it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than that <laughs> because the admission departments really didn't know where their students were coming from. They knew whether they were U.S. citizens or not, and I guess they knew whether they were from outside the United States, foreign international students, but had no clue about multiracial backgrounds, about whether foreign-born, uh, native-born students had an immigrant parent, just didn't know. So we said, okay, well, maybe it's not a 12-month project, maybe it's an 18-month project. What we'll do, we'll develop a two or three question questionnaire. We can print it on a postcard, and we'll send it out to folks. We'll ask them, where were you born? We'll ask, uh, where were your parents born? And we'll ask, where were your grandparents born? And that will give us all the data that we need. So I started thinking about this, and you know, conducting a survey and getting a representative sample of students, that's a big task. 
So it occurred to me, why don't we do something more systematic? Uh, instead of just having a postcard where we ask three questions, let's develop a full-fledged project. I'm interested in, in a whole bunch of issues, not just where the uh, black students are coming from, but uh, issues having to do with uh, not just campus life, uh, but also admissions, what people are doing to prepare themselves for admission to these top schools, how satisfied people are with their undergraduate experience, a whole host of things. And if you're going to go to the difficulty of finding people in the first place, let's ask them a whole bunch of other questions. And I wasn't interested just in the experiences of black students, but if you're going to conduct a survey, why not also contact white students, Hispanic students, Asian American students? So this is what we ended up doing. And what was intended to be initially a 12-month project and then expanded into an 18-month project grew to a project that ended up in a book that's 550 pages and took about eight years to finish. So I should say a little bit about the data. The data come from a variety of sources. I should say, to begin with, that because the project was funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation, they wanted us to stay within the set of academically selective colleges and universities that Mellon typically examines. These are schools that Mellon has given money to in the past, so when Mellon asks them to participate in a survey, they're more than likely to say yes. So we were constrained to a set of about 30 institutions that provided the data for, you may know the book, The Shape of the River, by Bill Bowen and Derek Bach. So we ended up contacting 10 academically selective colleges and universities. All 10 agreed to participate in this project. They represent public institutions as well as private institutions. They represent uh, research universities as well as small liberal arts colleges. They have geographic spread across the United States. We have a couple of HBCUs in the sample. Uh, I'd like to be able to tell you who they are. Uh, you would recognize the names of all of them, but we have agreements with the participating institutions to preserve their anonymity, uh, as well as, of course, preserving the confidentiality of the student information that they provided to us. So once we had uh, secured the agreement of these participating colleges and universities, we said, um, what we would like you to do is provide us information about all applicants for admission in one of three entering cohorts, 1983, 1993, and 1997. This request was being made about 2001. We'd like information on all applicants for admission, and not just a, an aggregate tally sheet, but detailed individual level information that includes the applicant's name, their date of birth, <coughs> their social security number, uh, their home address, so we'd have a zip code, and what high school they went to, so we'd have a college, uh, college board identifying number. And um, in addition, we wanted to know from the schools whether each applicant was admitted, and if they were admitted, whether they decided to enroll. We also, while we, had these, while we were drafting a letter, we also asked the institutions to provide us a bunch of other information about whether the applicants were recruited athletes, whether they were legacies, what their SAT scores were, uh, race, ethnicity, and so forth. Um, all the schools said, sure, we'll do that. We had to sign, I, I signed away the lives of my two grandchildren to be <laughs> as a promise that I wouldn't reveal any confidential information. Um, but we have in our institutional database 245,000 application records. 
from these participating colleges and universities. Of course, that didn't tell us all that we wanted to know. So in addition to the institutional data, we conducted a student survey. We contacted about uh, 12,000 students who had applied to or attended one of these academically selective colleges and universities, and about nine, more than 9,000 students completed a 16-page questionnaire that dealt with a whole variety of issues having to do with preparation for college as well as campus life issues. So those two um, aspects of the data constituted the bulk of the data, but we also availed ourselves of publicly available information from other sources. So the Census Bureau, for example, every 10 years conducts a census. I hope everybody's filled out their form and turned it back in. After the census is over, the Census Bureau processes the data in a variety of ways. And one of the things they do is create, they create what they call zip code files. So there is information about the demographic and socioeconomic characteristics of every zip code in the United States. We treated this zip code information as neighborhood information and downloaded it and attached it to each individual student's college record. In addition, uh, the Department of Education has information about every high school in the country, both public and private. Demographic information about the race-ethnic composition of students, the proportion of students who qualify for free lunch, that information also we downloaded to our uh, data and um, treated as, as high school information. We also managed to persuade the Department of Education to provide some uh, FAFSA information for us as well. So we had information about students' income and wealth uh, for those students who had applied to, um, for, for financial aid. So we have a relatively rich data set, and we've only really been able to scratch the surface of it in the analysis that we've done. So I wanted to give you some sense of how I got involved in this project to begin with and some sense of the data that we've put together. The primary aim of this book, as we say at the beginning, is, is largely descriptive. Our aim is to pull back the curtain on the selective college experience and examine how students' racial and social class backgrounds affect the college admissions process and a variety of issues having to do with campus life. There are all kinds of other influences that we could have looked at. We could have considered gender issues. One of our outside reviewers said, yes, but you didn't look at gender. I said, well, that would have made the book even 50% greater. We could have looked at legacy influences, at recruited athlete influences, but we wanted to concentrate on two of the more contested areas involving college admissions and campus life. So we, fo we chose to focus uh, exclusively on students' racial and social class backgrounds, although the statistical work that we've done has these other influences there so we know that we're doing the statistics properly. We wanted to mainly look at the selective college experience through the lens of students' racial and social class backgrounds. And we look at the process starting when students are in high school, thinking about preparing for admission to selective colleges and universities, and take that process all the way through admissions, enrollment, through to college graduation. So we have information about graduation rates, cumulative GPAs at graduation. That's where our inquiry ends. We haven't looked at what happens to students after they graduate. It's focused on this college experience. So there are as I said, a number of questions that we talk about, but I, I thought I would focus on just two that might be of greatest interest to the audience tonight. Um, the first question that I want to spend some time talking about is the provocative issue, I think, 
do we still need affirmative action? Um, and the second issue uh, has to do not so much with the admissions process, but with a series of issues of, of campus life. And that question is, are we making the most of diversity? So um, I'll spend most of my time, I think, trying to unpack these two questions. And then I want to uh, talk about policy recommendations at the end. And um, I hope we have time for, I will make time for questions and answers. So the first uh, question, do we still need affirmative action? And what I have in mind here is race-based affirmative action. So the kinds of questions that uh, arise when we talk about race-based affirmative action are who benefits from affirmative action? Um, are these the intended beneficiaries of affirmative action? Is it possible that race-based affirmative action actually harms its intended beneficiaries? It's a very interesting, provocative question that uh, people are examining. And then um, toward the end, uh, what would be the impact if we did away with race-based affirmative action, as has been done in California, Michigan now, Washington, um, what would be the impact on the race and ethnic composition of entering students? And a related question is, if we did do away with race-based affirmative action, are there other feasible admission policies that we could think of that would have the same effect on the race-ethnic composition of an entering class, but don't have what some people consider the divisive elements of race-based affirmative action. For example, could we substitute economic or class-based affirmative action for race-based affirmative action? So these are some of the issues that, that arise. Let's talk about this broader question, do we still need affirmative action? Um, one of the things that we've done as part of the statistical work is to relate students' characteristics including the characteristics of the high schools that they've gone to. Uh, but when I talk about relating student characteristics, I mean social class, race, ethnicity, gender, recruited athlete status, legacy status, a whole raft of scores and measures of academic performance. Um, we've related these characteristics to the likelihood of getting admitted to these top schools. And what we found, this won't come as a surprise to anybody in the room, what we found is that everything else equal, I'm not sure that everything else ever is equal, but we say that in a statistical way, everything else equal, black students have the best chance of being admitted to these selective colleges and universities. Hispanic students have the next best chance. White students, the next best chance. And Asian students, the poorest chance of being admitted. Everything else equal. Um, we've measured the strength of these boosts or plus factors for each of the race ethnic groups, but it doesn't really convey a lot of information to talk about uh, odds ratios. So one of the things that we've done is to try to convert the strength of the boost or the plus factors for each of these different race ethnic groups into a metric that most of us can relate to. So we've put them in terms of their SAT score equivalents just so we can get some sense of whether the boost for different race ethnic groups is big, small, or, or what. And we've used the white student population as our comparison group. What we found in our analysis 
is that the strength of the boost for African-American students compared to white students is equivalent to 310 SAT points on a 1,600-point scale. The strength of the boost for Hispanic students compared to whites on a 1,600 SAT point scale is 130 SAT points. And there is an Asian disadvantage or an Asian penalty that is equivalent to minus 140 SAT points. In other words, to have the same chance of being admitted as white students, Asian American applicants would have to have SAT scores 140 points higher than white students, everything else equal. So there's a lot of controversy that swirls around the Asian American community, as you might imagine, about anti-Asian discrimination. Um, I'm not here to talk so much about that. We, we can. That's another whole conversation in itself. But uh, I did want to begin by laying out some of the facts about the strengths of these boosts or the plus factors at the schools that we've studied. I should say, by the way, that most of what I'm going to talk about tonight has to do with the private schools in our study. We also have public institutions, as I mentioned, and we've done analyses separately for the public and the private institutions. I inhabit the private institution world, so I'm going to talk about the results for the private institutions. Now, um, one of the things that we wanted to do was begin to unpack these racial categories, these ethnic categories, because to group students broadly into African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, and white conceals a lot of heterogeneity. And one of the things that we wanted to do, uh, and this comes back to a theme I had mentioned earlier, for the black students in our sample, we wanted to decompose the black students in our data into those who were descendants, descendants of the American slave population, and the vanguards, those students who were either foreign-born immigrants themselves, or they had an immigrant parent, typically from the islands or from Africa, uh, or they were multiracial. And one of the reasons that we wanted to unpack these racial labels was there is a, a, a controversy within a controversy. In other words, affirmative action itself uh, arouses a fair amount of passion. But within the broad controversy of pros and cons of affirmative action, there's the question of who are the legitimate heirs? Who is entitled to affirmative action? And some people argue, for social justice reasons, that it would be the descendants of the American slave population, those black students who are entitled to the benefits of affirmative action, not necessarily the vanguard black students who haven't had the same experience. They and their families haven't had the same experience. So we wanted to look separately at the boost of the plus factors given these two groups. It turns out that both of these groups of black students receive a plus factor, a boost relative to white students in our sample, but the boost is about three times greater for the descendant black students than it is for the vanguard black students. So for those people who believe in the social justice argument for affirmative action and believe that that is maybe the only rationale. There's some comfort in these numbers in the sense that the descendants, the descendant black students get a bigger boost, but it is also the case that the vanguard black students receive a boost in the admission process relative to white students. So this is, uh, th this is also part of this question of uh, are the beneficiaries of affirmative action the intended beneficiaries? 
Let me move on to this other uh, question about does race-based affirmative action harm its intended beneficiaries? You can imagine how an argument like this goes. It's sometimes uh, called the mismatch hypothesis. So the argument goes like this. It has two parts to it. Um, The effect of affirmative action, race-based affirmative action, is to boost underrepresented minority students who might have gone to a college at this level. It's to boost them into a higher tier institution. They go to a more competitive academic environment, a more competitive, more selective institution than perhaps they would have had they not been the beneficiaries of race-based affirmative action. Then the story goes that when they find themselves in this higher-tier institution, all of a sudden they're confronted with with, uh, classmates, with peers, whose academic preparation is stronger than theirs or stronger than it would have been had they gone to a lower-tier institution. This greater competitiveness, it is argued as part of this mismatch hypothesis, has two consequences. One, it's argued that underrepresented minority students who are the beneficiaries of affirmative action end up graduating at lower rates because of the competition they face. And if they do graduate, they end up ranked lower in the class distribution at graduation. There's a uh, fairly well-known economist who teaches at the UCLA Law School, Rick Sander, who's done an analysis of uh, nationwide law school data. And he is probably the most uh, outspoken, the most uh, well-known proponent of this mismatch hypothesis. And to cut to his bottom line, he argues that as a result of race-based affirmative action, uh, American law schools are actually producing fewer black attorneys than they would otherwise. There's several... uh, steps in the argument about lower graduation rates, lower bar passage rates, and so forth. But the bottom line is, according to his argument, um, we're producing fewer black attorneys than we would otherwise if we we didn't have uh, affirmative action. Well, we don't study in our our project, we're not looking at uh, law school data, but we are looking at selective colleges and universities. And what do we find? We find some support for this mismatch hypothesis, but not complete support. Um, where we do not agree with the mismatch hypothesis is on the effect of greater institutional selectivity on your likelihood of graduating. Uniformly, your chances of graduating are going to be much better if you go to a more as opposed to a less selective institution. Students who come to Princeton have a better chance of graduating than students who go to Rutgers. I tell the students in my freshman seminar Fall semester, September, they only graduated from high school three months ago. They're sitting around the table. They're all nervous, wondering if they're going to measure up. I look around the table and I say, you guys really shouldn't worry. The hard part about Princeton is getting in. Princeton is very hard to fail out of. They don't, they, of course, they don't believe me until second year, third year. But there are so many support systems in place, the resources of a place like Princeton, the, the deep pockets are such that the moment a student gets into any kind of academic difficulty, deans swoop in to uh, provide safety nets. Students are given second chances, third chances. Uh, and so this is essentially why graduation rates are greater at the more selective institutions. People are watching you. And if you come into any, if you stub your toe, The slightest bit of stumble, people are there to help. It wouldn't be the case at a larger state university where there's greater anonymity. 
So we don't find evidence for this claim that uh, race-based affirmative action results in lower graduation rates. On the other hand, what we do find some support for um, is the fact that if you do graduate, going to a more selective institution is likely to push you down a little bit more in the class rank distribution simply because by going to that more selective institution you're surrounded by people whose levels of college preparation is greater. So there is this, uh, there's this trade-off that goes on between uh, a higher graduation rate on the one hand and perhaps a lower class rank on the other. And what do I make of this trade-off? What is the net effect of these two things possibly working in opposite directions? Well, I have to ask myself, when's the last time anybody ever wanted to know where I graduated in my class rank distribution? I'm not sure I know what it is. What they care about is, do, where did you go to college and did you graduate? That's the most important thing. So my sort of personal evaluation of how one evaluates the, these two countervailing tendencies is that graduating from a more selective institution greatly outweighs a slightly lower class rank because graduating from a more selective institution, well, first of all, gra graduating from a more selective institution means a greater likelihood of going on to professional graduate school. It means a higher likelihood of greater lifetime income and other professional rewards that are associated with a more selective institution. Then this last point about do we still need affirmative action? Um, yes. Let me just unpack this a little bit. One of the things that we've done through a series of what academics call simulations, they're basically a series of what-if exercises, we have asked ourselves what the impact would be on the racial-ethnic profile of the entering freshman class of experimenting with different admission policies. One is get rid of uh, the admission boosts for underrepresented minority students. Second, go to a completely race-neutral uh, uh, situation where you don't take into account the Asian penalty? What if we tried to substitute class-based affirmative action for race-based affirmative action? What if we went to a percent plan, a plan like they've adopted in the, uh, in the University of Texas where, uh, say, the top 10% of graduates in every high school class earn automatic admission to a college? What if we admitted students based on SAT scores? And on and on and on. What we have done uh, is consulted maybe 20 different simulations that we've done. And the bottom line is that there is no feasible alternative to race-based affirmative action if one wants to maintain the racial ethnic composition of today's student bodies. There is one qualification to this, which I'll come back to later. It doesn't necessarily have to do with a different admission policy. but um, in, the, in the policy recommendations, I'll come back to this uh, issue of the uh, achievement gap. What we did was artificially close the achievement gap. We can do it in our data. It's much more difficult to do it in the real world. We artificially closed the achievement gap between black and white students and between Hispanic and white students simply by uh, as ascribing to black and Hispanic students the academic records of similarly situated white students, so we artificially, mechanically closed the achievement gap. And at the same time, we did away with race-based affirmative action. And to my surprise, if you do these two things in tandem, you come back to exactly the same racial ethnic distribution that we have today. So another way of putting this is that race-based affirmative action 
is the antidote that people have been using for the existence of the race-based, uh, uh, the racial uh, achievement gap, both the gap between blacks and whites and the gap between uh, Hispanics and whites. Um, so I wanted to report on the results of, of um, our simulations in response to, answer, to a- answering this question, do we still need affirmative action? There are lots of other ways that we can think about it too. But I want to move on to the second question, and that is, are we making the most of diversity? Now, why is this important? Well, <clears throat> this question arises very centrally in the context of the 2003 U.S. Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court decision in which Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the majority opinion in a narrow 5-4 decision that involved the law school at the University of Michigan and involved the undergraduate uh, admission process at the University of Michigan. The Supreme Court, uh, at both the law school case and the undergraduate case, was persuaded by the evidence that was put before it, in part this book, The Shape of the River, that we've referred to earlier, but a lot of other evidence that was put before the court, the court was persuaded that there are educational benefits to diversity. This, for the lawyers in the room, uh, the educational benefits to diversity constituted a compelling state interest that justified the continued use of race as one of many factors that were used to admit students to the law school. Um, the argument was that if you admit a diverse group of students through the admission office, then these students are, you have structural diversity in your uh, student population. These students will then mix and mingle. They will share their perspectives with each other. Their perspectives will bump up against each other. Uh, people's horizons will be stretched. People will be able to better able to put themselves in somebody else's position. Perspective taking will be enhanced. And so uh, having a diverse group of students leads to these educational benefits. The educational benefits don't necessarily mean you'll do better in a biology test, but learning in a broader sense. Um, and of course, this mixing and mingling and sharing perspectives can only happen if you admit a diverse group of students to begin with. So this was the linchpin on which the University of Michigan uh, Law School case was decided. Um, So we wanted to look at our data to see what we could learn about whether there are, in fact, educational benefits to diversity. We knew that we had a diverse group of students. The admission office was doing its job, but that's that's a necessary but not a sufficient condition for there to be educational benefits to diversity. We also wanted to look at how much mixing and mingling took place across racial and ethnic lines, and where there was mixing and mingling, we wanted to learn how much Learning took place. To what extent were people's horizons broadened as a result of this mixing and mingling? So we looked at mixing and mingling in four different social domains. One was uh, just sort of informal hanging out. We asked people, how often did you socialize with people during your four years of college? How often did you socialize with people whose race, ethnic backgrounds uh, are, are different from your own? That was one context. We looked at uh, who your roommates were over your four years of college. So we had people identify their roommates, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and then we asked the race ethnicity of each roommate. We also asked the uh, racial composition of your best friend networks. So we started by saying, okay, think about 
who your five best friends were in college and write down their first names. We don't actually care who they are, but we want you to focus on particular individuals, not just say, oh, yes, I had a very diverse group of friends when I was an undergraduate. Because we knew from pretesting that there were people who said, oh, yes, I had a very diverse group of friends, but when they wrote down their names, they all turned out to be white. Um, so it was very good to get people to focus on uh, particular individuals, and then we asked the race, ethnicity of each of those individuals. And the final social domain was dating patterns. Well, um, it won't come as a surprise to find out that uh, there was a lot of social interaction among students of the same race. Roughly 90% of all the students in our population said, yes, we had a fair amount of social interaction in each of these four social domains. But then we turned the question around and said, okay, what about cross-race social interaction? Two-thirds of the respondents said that they socialized often or very often with somebody from a different racial ethnic background. A half of our respondents said that they had a roommate at some point in their college career whose race ethnicity was different from their own. Another half of the respondents said they had at least one friend from a different racial and ethnic background. And a third of the respondents reported having dated somebody from a different race ethnicity. So here we have the data. Now, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, is the glass half full? Is the glass half empty? There's more mixing and mingling than zero, but more would be possible. Unfortunately, we don't have a gold standard out there against which to measure the behaviors of our students. When we ask these same questions about each race ethnicity group, what did we find? We found that white students are the most racially isolated group of any student, body, student group on campus. And it's not just because all of these institutions that we studied are majority white institutions. Even taking that into account, white students are more racially isolated than any other group. Um, the Hispanic students, interestingly enough, were the least racially isolated. Hispanic students were much more likely to interact with non-Hispanic students than they were with Hispanic students. And then black and Asian students you know, fall, fall in between. Um, so then we wanted to go one step more and ask about... Um, learning from difference. We asked students on a seven-point scale, how much did you learn from people whose racial ethnic backgrounds were different from yours? About 30% of the students said, I learned a lot. Another 30 said, I didn't learn a darn thing, or very little. And then there was a 40% in the middle that was sort of ambivalent. They weren't quite sure. The students who were most likely to say they learned a lot were the Hispanic students, who had interacted a fair amount. The students who were the least likely to say they had learned anything were the white students. Also, by the way, when we looked at this by social class, it was the upper class students who felt they had learned the least and the working, middle and working class kids who felt they had learned the most. Um, then finally, we wanted to relate learning from difference to these patterns of social interaction. And uniformly across the board, those people who had a lot of social interaction in any of these four social domains were twice as likely to report having learned a lot from people whose backgrounds are different from their own than students who didn't have much opportunity, uh, or at least didn't, didn't take advantage of the opportunity. So are we making the most of diversity? Probably not. Uh, not on selective college and university campuses, not in our communities and neighborhoods either. So uh, 
Let me come to this, uh, the last, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about policy recommendations. So um, we, have, we have three. Um, I'll mention two of them rather quickly, and then I want to spend most of the time on uh, what is, I think, a societal challenge. Two of the challenges that we talk about are challenges really for uh, admission deans and college administrators. One, of course, is that just to pick up on the point we were just talking about. One of the challenges is to uh, think about ways to actively promote more positive interaction across racial and ethnic lines. Um, this can sometimes be a, a hard challenge. Um, there are a variety of strategies that institutions have used, some quite successfully. Randomizing freshman roommates, for example, is one that seems to work. And there are others as well. Uh, but people who have studied this said that these policies have to be intentional. Uh, there's this very nice quote I like, that the serendipity is too important to be left to chance. Um, and the, I also wanted to, to mention another uh, quote. People may know Chris Edley, Jr. Uh, maybe you know his father, who was uh, president of the United Negro College Fund. Chris Edley, Jr. is currently the dean of the Bolt Hall, Bolt Hall Law School at Berkeley. Um, and he, he has this wonderful quote where he says, the task of building community involves more than sitting around the campfire, holding hands, and singing kumbaya. Uh, so it's hard work. That's one of the, the, the policy recommendations. The second policy recommendation relates to something we haven't talked about too much. Um, it turns out that when colleges and universities, the private ones, are admitting students, if you tabulate the probability of being admitted by a student's uh, social class background, surprise, surprise, the students who come from the highest social class categories have a greater likelihood of being admitted than people in the middle and certainly greater than the people at the bottom. So the challenge for admission deans is to think about their job, not just in terms of admissions, but recruitment and admission, and to recruit into their applicant pools enough low and, work, uh, enough low and moderate income kids that they can be admitted at the same rates as the middle, upper middle, and the upper class kids. But the most important uh, challenge, I think, that we uh, focus on is not so much a challenge for admission deans or um, deans of campus life, but for society as a whole. And I've talked with several people beforehand and, and had some email conversations back and forth with people too about the achievement gap. Uh, to my mind, this is the most pressing domestic issue facing the United States at the beginning of the 21st century. And I say it with only a slight bit of exaggeration because this issue of the achievement gap underlies so many other problems that we think of as important problems, but we don't make the connection between the achievement gap and some of these bigger societal problems. Um, if we did not have an achievement gap, just imagine this for a moment. Suppose that there was a level educational playing field for everyone. Who would benefit? Well, first of all, the beneficiaries would be those individuals, those kids whose lives would be made brighter as a result. Higher education would also benefit because, as I mentioned earlier, if there were no achievement gap, we wouldn't need race-based affirmative action to achieve the racial-ethnic diversity. And I, I mention uh, this not just as a hypothetical possibility, but if one reads the, the tea leaves, 
It's not an exaggeration, I think, to think that there is a gradual asphyxiation of race-based affirmative action in this country. The composition of the Supreme Court has changed since the Sandra Day O'Connor Supreme Court in 2003, and state by state by state has ballot initiatives where this is put before the voters. And even though in the University of Michigan case, the university prevailed in terms of its race-based affirmative action. A couple of years later, voters in the state of Michigan by something like a 59 to 41 majority, a substantial majority, uh, passed a constitutional amendment that outlawed the use of race-based affirmative action in public employment contracting and higher education. So um, it's not quite clear to me what the life expectancy of race-based affirmative action is, and uh, what do we do uh, if there comes a time when institutions, selective institutions are told that um, it's no longer legally permissible. So higher education would definitely benefit. The corporate, corporate America would benefit because the diversity pipeline would be swelled much more fully than it is at the present time. Taxpayers in general would benefit because we could achieve the same level of public service for much lower expenditure. So the people in this world who are anti-tax should be the strongest supporters of measures to close the achievement gap. So how do we do this? Uh, I'm not the first person, of course, to stand up and talk about the importance of the achievement gap. Uh, this question has been researched. It's been studied. Volunteers, armies of volunteers, Teach for America. Where's the gentleman that I was speaking to? Uh, Teach for America, other teacher corps, there are increasing numbers of people who are putting their shoulder to the wheel, but the sad fact remains that the achievement gap hasn't budged very much. So um, I'm not quite sure what we need to jumpstart this. I was thinking, uh, when we had the Manhattan Project in this country, from 1942 to 1946 to develop the atomic bomb, the thing that gave the United States a kick in the pants was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The thing that jump-started the Apollo project in this country was the launching in 1957 of the Russians of Sputnik. All of a sudden, we realized, my gosh, what's going on? We need some kind of a kick in the pants, a slap in the face, to wake up to the importance of the achievement gap, something that will galvanize political will, public support on a nationwide basis in the same way that the Manhattan Project and the Apollo Project did. So what we end up talking about at the very end is a a Manhattan Project for the Social Sciences. We use this analogy to suggest something on the scale, the same sense of urgency and importance that the original Manhattan Project had. Um, and what we basically have in mind is um, a longitudinal research project that would follow a cohort of individuals from birth, several people said it earlier tonight or before, all the way through age 18 or 20, onto the first rung, at least, of their post-secondary uh, secondary, uh, education, so that we could identify the circumstances under which these achievement gaps begin to develop and experiment with different interventions that could begin to close these gaps, not just in the Harlem Children's Zone or other demonstrated local areas of success, but on a nationwide basis. We need to be able to scale these things up to the, to the national level. Um, the, the last thing I'll say about this, I, I could talk more about it, but in addition uh, to these 
potential beneficiaries if we had no achievement gap. It seems to me that if we were able to uh, close this achievement gap, uh, this Manhattan Project that we talk about could do more for race relations and racial equality in this country than any other project that I know of that's being talked about at the, at the present time. So let me stop there, and we have some time for we, – we started a little bit late. Maybe we can ease over into our uh, 7.30. Thing. The library doesn't close, I think, until 8, but somebody else is the arbiter of the time. Vernon. What's your degree of confidence in – us reaching some kind of conclusion with affirmative action or level playing field by 2028. I mean, I look at that as the terminal date in terms well, of... Well, I'm not optimistic, to tell you the truth. Okay. Um, one of the things we have to realize, and this is why I said there's a certain urgency to this issue of closing the achievement gap, is that the kids who are going to go off to college in 2028 and who may or may not be... Uh, uh, have a situation of race-based affirmative action. Those kids, if you back it up, are being born in 2010. Some of them have already been born. So it's not as if we have another 18 years to figure this out. There's a, there's a, a, a greater... You have to think about this in a telescoping way. Now, um, it's not quite clear. The constitutional lawyers in the crowd may have some sense of how to interpret her phrase that we expect. I don't know how much legal weight that has. In, in writings since that Supreme Court decision, she's backed off of her comments quite a bit. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that anything that she said she, since she's not on the bench doesn't carry nearly the force that it did in her majority opinion. Yes? Well, first of all, uh, Professor Espenshade, I want to say thank you for bringing out some of the points that uh, I've, I've been thinking about for a long time. One thing I'd like to make mention of to everybody is that, and not taking anything from what you've said and not to try to steal your thunder, but one thing I think we had best collectively had better try to do even before we get to the college level is do something about public education in this country. Not only, I mean, not only get a grip on, but effectively upgrade, dramatically upgrade public education in this country because you talk about uh, you made mention of uh, something about for the good of the country. Uh, look, how many vets do we have in here? Vets, armed forces veterans. Well, look, for anybody who's not aware of it, it's my understanding that the armed forces currently has to teach a considerable number of its recruits to read before it can train them to be soldiers. And these are the young men and women who are defending our country. Talk about a threat to national security? What's that? Talk about a kick in the pants that we need? Uh, like you mentioned, the uh, Manhattan Project. What are we going to have to do? Have somebody blow up a few, um, nuke a few of our cities before we get our heads out of our rear regions? Huh? Now, look, I'm hey, look, y'all, I'm serious. Like I said, this is a, a very serious threat to our national security. You've heard about these incidences of friendly fire in Afghanistan and Iraq. What the armed forces won't tell you is that a lot of these troops cannot read sufficiently to handle the sophisticated military hardware that Uncle Sam has, so they're blowing themselves up and putting their fellow troops at risk because they can't read. And the armed forces would take too much, t it would take too much in terms of time and resources to bring them up to speed uh, in, in order to get them prepped to train them to be soldiers. So what we'd better do first is get... I, and again, not taking anything from what you said, because we need that secondary education 
in order to be able to compete. But we'd better work on public education first so that these, when these children get to be freshmen at Harvard, Yale, uh, Community College of Baltimore, Morgan, and elsewhere, that they can handle the job, that they can do, can, uh, that they know what they're doing when they get into freshman math, freshman English, freshman biology, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So if I could just add one thing to that, um, I, I should have maybe said, these achievement gaps begin very early in kids' lives. Um, and by th they, they emerge, by the time kids are 18 months old, they're evident. Uh, the gaps get bigger. By the time kids go to kindergarten, there's about a year's gap on average between white and black kids. The gaps keep on getting bigger in a, in a sort of process of cumulative advantage and cumulative disadvantage. So that by the time we get to age 18, when people will be graduating from high school, there's a four-year gap between blacks and whites. Um, we should also be talking about gaps between Asians and Hispanics, but a lot of time the achievement gap is framed just in terms of black-white, but we need to think about it more broadly. Uh, and what we know is that social class differences account for maybe half the achievement gap, but even within income categories or social class categories, there are gaps between blacks and whites, smaller than we see in, if, if we don't look within income groups. And what we know is that there's a... In, we, we know something in general about the contributing factors. So schools are a factor, neighborhoods, peer groups, parenting, all of these things together, but we don't really know what the relative importance are or the most effective points of intervention. Even if there isn't the mixing that we want in college, even if uh, the different cultural groups don't intermix, I still think there's a firm these are strong reasons for continuing affirmative action. Well, Sandra Day O'Connor did everybody a favor at the end of her opinion by adding another rationale for race-based affirmative action, which is that it opens up pathways to leadership for all groups in the population. But the way the Supreme Court and lawyers look at these issues, um, a social justice rationale is not sufficient to support race-based affirmative action. It may not make sense, but this is the way the lawyers look at it. And unless you can demonstrate that there are educational benefits to diversity, you run the risk someday of, of having another Supreme Court say, okay, time's up on race-based affirmative action. So this mixing and mingling is critically important, not just the admission part. Um, and and I, I think the, the longitudinal um, research will, would bear out a lot of interesting you know, reasons behind the, the achievement gap. Do you at this point have sort of early uh, you know, suspicion or early uh, hypothesis about solutions that you know the, the, the longitudinal research will bear out. We're saying, you know, I bet we're going to need to improve the public schools. Do, do you, are there, is there stuff that you're hoping to find out in the longitudinal study that you kind of know now will help close the achievement gap? It's all of the above. <laughs> um, we could start um, you know, I'm thinking of what our president says. Turn off the television and read to your kids. And that sounds so simple. But let me tell you a story. Uh, it, 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 if I say to you, what do you imagine when a parent is reading to their child? What mental image do you have? Um, see if it corresponds with the following. Uh, 
folks at Harvard have been uh, having a summer workshop on the achievement gap, and I've been going to it for a couple of years. Uh, one year, the theme was on parenting practices. So there was a video of a mother reading to her child, the two- or three-year-old child. The mother had apparently been at some kind of a workshop where she learned that it was important to read to your child. So here we have a table, and the mother is sitting on one side of the table. The daughter is sitting on the other side of the table. The mother is holding the book in front of her like this, and she is reading to her child. The child is sitting over there doesn't have a clue as to what the pictures are, what the words look like. Now, this probably does not correspond to what most people think of when they imagine a mother a parent reading to a child. So even in something as elementary as that, there's more mentoring, more, demons, more, more work that needs to be done. Uh, hi. Um, Two-parter, I'm sorry. Um, I guess in the spectrum of college admissions preferences, um, where do the preferences for legacy and recruited athlete students lie? And also, sorry, my second part, my question is, um, what are your thoughts on the, I guess, um, new programs, uh, such as the ones um, suggested by Professor Fryer at Harvard for providing monetary incentives for students in schools? Okay, so, uh, well, one question has to do with admissions policies and, and where do the athletes and legacy stack up in relationship to uh, some of these other things. The, um, the legacies have every, excuse me, the recruited athletes have everybody else beat in terms of the strength of preference. Uh, but there's, that's a little bit artificial because uh, coaches won't recruit somebody that they don't think has a very good chance of being admitted. So there, there's a pre-screening before the students even get to the admission office. Um, the most extreme case that helps to understand why recruited athlete preferences are so high is a story that I read about at Duke several years ago where um, a recruited athlete was told that he had been admitted and then the coach said, okay, now you should go and apply. So in a case like that, you've got 100% preference for uh, recruited athletes. The, um, the, the preferences for black and Hispanic kids have been going down over time, especially for Hispanic kids. The legacy preferences have been holding pretty constant, but they are, uh, I think, lower than the preferences for black and Hispanic kids at the present time. So the other question is, what, what do I think of um, a, a proposal that it's, it's more than a proposal. It's been experimented with in New York, I think. Uh, an economist at Harvard, Roland Fryer, has proposed that we pay kids for good grades, for uh, attendance, and, and some other things. And what, what do I think about this? Um, well, I guess I, I, I wonder um, what, the, what the motivation is for students uh, excelling. I mean, if, if, they're, if they're motivated primarily because they get a check at the end of every month that allows them to go out and buy whatever they want, uh, what happens to their motivation when the school stops paying or somebody stops paying? It happens sooner or later. So I, I'm, I'm all in favor of increasing people's motivation to work hard in school, but somehow it seems to me we ought to be able to think of a better motivator than uh, you know, a $5 bill or whatever it is they get paid for. Thank you, Ms. Professor Espenshade, for You're coming welcome. and enlightening us on this controversial topic. I have a a question. I don't have children. I'm not going to have children. But I want to know what can I do in my community to, um, to encourage the young people to aspire to better themselves and to um, 
attend the higher educations such as the Ivy League schools? What can I do as a, as a lay person in the community to, um, to encourage the young people, specifically the minorities, to, um, to aspire and achieve more and not necessarily um, depend on affirmative action to get you into these Ivy League schools? That's, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm sure that there must be numerous people in this audience who are already doing things. And if you said you'd be happy to talk with them afterwards, I'm sure many people would come up to you and say, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. It relates to the question, too, that this, uh, oh, he's moved over here. This gentleman asked about uh, what, what do we think can work uh, before we've even begun this Manhattan Project. So the more shoulders to the wheel, the, the bigger the critical mass of people who are interested in this problem, the greater the likelihood of success. So there is all kinds of mentoring that people can do in their free time, at the, uh, volunteering, teaching, reading, tutoring at the community centers, uh, in church. I mean, it, it's, I, I couldn't, I could spend a half an hour and still not go through the, the list of things that would be possible. But your heart is in the right place. And uh, if, if, if more people were thinking along the lines that you're thinking, uh, we'd be farther down the road in, in addressing this issue. Sure. Um, could you pass the microphone to this gentleman in the blue shirt? Yes. Good. Um, in your revelations about uh, all the uh, racial and ethnic isolation that you found in this study, despite the heroic efforts of admission officers, you know, to promote the diversity. Uh, were there any success stories? I mean, were there colleges whose uh, actions and whose traits, you know, promoted a measure of diversity that you didn't find in a lot of these other colleges that were part of the study, uh, you know, who came up with findings that were uh, a whole lot more heartening than the general conclusions of the study? Well, we didn't actually analyze the data school by school. What we were trying to do was put together a composite picture. But um, uh, if I had to pick a school off the top of my head that I think might come close to meeting some of the criteria that you've just mentioned, it would be uh, Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. Anybody know about Berea College? Okay. Uh, Berea College admits only low-income kids, there is no tuition. Everybody who goes to Berea is full scholarship. Um, but the kids all have um, work-study jobs on campus. They are helping to rake the leaves. They're helping to paint the buildings. They're helping to do this. They're helping to do that. And they are working together in teams on a regular basis towards some common objective, which is to help the well-being of the college. My guess is that if we studied what's going on at Berea College, we'd find a lot of lessons that we could learn uh, and transport to some of these other institutions. One of the recommendations that we make uh, for what institutions these selective colleges and universities might do is to take a lesson from the military or take a lesson from athletic teams. Uh, what social psychologists have found is that the best way to reduce prejudice is to have a group of diverse students of equal status, working together on a sustained basis in pursuit of a common objective. You think about athletic teams, right? You think about the military, right? Why don't we expand the, this example and form these community service groups 
on campus among diverse groups of students and have them work on projects either on campus or off campus over a period of time in pursuit of some common objective. I think that could do a lot. And I think that's what Berea College is doing. So I'm, I'm glad I heard several amens when I was talking about uh, Berea College. Uh, somebody who hasn't had a chance to, uh, yes. I wanted to ask actually about the difference between achievement and the discourse of achievement, by which I mean in the last 20 years of American society where achievement means specific things as part of an ownership society, of being on the media, of being in the public eye, of instead of just, let's say, being a car mechanic, owning a whole string of car mechanic dealerships, being part of that ownership and wealth society, where achievement can also be given the decline in the laboring class of America, just being a good worker. And what I mean is I teach African-American literature at Johns Hopkins, and I have a lot of black students who are going to be in the, in the sciences who work in public health who will probably have really good jobs in labs. But will they be counted as, as Du Bois would call the talented 10th versus what Booker T. Washington would call just good working people, the way it seems to me that a lot of my Asian students don't achieve you know, uh, in the public spotlight in the leadership arena, but still uh, in the sciences, in really good jobs, achieve at very high levels. I don't think the point of closing the achievement gap is to make everyone into a PhD scientist. Um, when, we, when, when people who are interested in this achievement gap uh, talk about achievement, what they really mean is learned skills and knowledge. And how do we assess this? Well, the best way I guess we have to assess it are standardized tests of some kind or another. And there's a whole debate about standardized testing. But the, the hope is that um, we can bring students whose level of learned skills and knowledge are below average up to, uh, to, to move it up so that we don't have these disparities among different racial and ethnic groups because the disparities that we see in terms of these achievement gaps in school result in a high school graduation gap, in a college enrollment gap, in a labor market skills gap, in a wage gap, in a poverty gap. So there's this process of cumulative advantage and cumulative causation. So many of the adult patterns of inequality that we see in this country by health status, by incarceration rates, by poverty, by family structure, have as some of their root causes these achievement gaps. And it's, so the, the objective is to try to eliminate these kinds of inequalities in adult life. And one of the ways to do it is to minimize the achievement gaps as kids are going through the school process. Okay, last question. Are all of the elite colleges considered uh, affirmative action? Oh, yeah. So um, there are something like uh, 2,500 four-year colleges and universities in the United States, and only a small minority actually practice race-based affirmative action, maybe 10%. Uh, and the reason is that uh, for the most part, um, the chances of being admitted to the typical college and university is about 70%. So if you're, if you're a college or university who is basically admitting everybody, you don't have the wiggle room to pick and choose. So it's only the, the top tier uh, private and public universities that are engaged in some form of racial affirmative action. So 
once they're um, admitted, are they like automatically into an affirmative action program or? Um, no, I mean that once you're admitted, then you're just. Uh, it's it's only something that happens at the uh, at the admission process. Well, I should qualify that a little bit. Um, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, some of these schools have uh, programs that they run in the summertime between high school graduation and entering uh, fall semester. At Princeton, it's called the Freshman Scholars Institute. And so students whom the um, admission office or other deans feel might have some difficulty in the high school to college transition are invited to come to the Freshman Scholars Institute. At Princeton, the students tend to be of two categories uh, to a first approximation. You've got recruited athletes and you have underrepresented minority students. Uh, what the students do at Princeton is take two courses in the summertime that allows them to bank. These are two regular curriculum courses, you can bank these two towards your graduation requirements. So if you're a recruited athlete, when you're spending 50 hours a week on your sport, you can take a reduced class load. If you're an underrepresented minority student, especially if you're an underrepresented minority student whose, whose high school wasn't that strong and whose college preparation may not have been as strong as some other students, you have those two courses in the bank and you can make a, a, a smoother transition into uh, the, the college curriculum. But other than that, uh, race-based affirmative action or any kind of affirmative action is only something that comes into play at the time admission decisions are being made and then after that it's... It, it does have some, some lingering consequences in the minds of, of peer students, but in, in, in actual practice it's just something that occurs at the time of admission. So thank you very much for your questions and thank you for coming out tonight.